welcome to Glam City. I'm Tamsin Peach. And I'm Anna Clark. For those of you who don't know GLAM, it's a great little acronym that groups together all of our cultural institutions that have been charged with preserving our cultural heritage and identities like galleries, libraries, archives and museums. And all these places have a mission to provide access to knowledge. And lucky for us, we have this week one very knowledgeable guest who is an expert in popular culture, Associate Professor Michelle Arrow from Macquarie University. And on September the 5th, Michelle will be delivering the annual History Week lecture. Welcome, Michelle. Hello. We've gone back many years, Michelle, seeing each other around the history traps in Sydney. And you've always been a terrific speaker about popular culture and popular history. What draws you to the area of popular culture? Well, I think one of the things that struck me about popular culture is that it's a great way to engage students in the past. And so in some ways, my interest in popular culture started when I was approached to convene a course about the history of popular culture. After we sort of did that for a little while, I thought it'd be great to do a history of popular culture in Australia from the the last 50 years, which was the kind of period we covered the course in the course. But I also think that popular culture is not just a way to get students engaged in the past, but it's a way for people to connect their own experience to a broader historical narrative, I think, because popular culture is not just the stuff you watch on television. It's kind of produced within a culture and society. And so it conveys things about culture Mm. and society. And people often don't necessarily think of it in that way until you kind of open that up and say, actually, what you're watching, listening to, reading can tell us something about Mm. kind of bigger questions, Mm. bigger issues. You can be part of history. You're not just reading about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it sounds like you are then the perfect person to deliver the History Week lecture. Congratulations on on being chosen to do that. The theme of this week's History Week is, of course, understanding Australian popular culture. Um, So who do you think defines popular culture, Michelle, and why? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think in some ways I still feel like it's not a question that is resolved by historians entirely to anyone's satisfaction. I mean, you know, Richard Waterhouse wrote a big history of Australian popular culture and he used the definition of an American historian, Lawrence Levine, which is kind of basically popular culture is popular culture that is widely accessed, read, viewed, you know, so he's kind of defining it in terms of popularity and and kind of scope and range rather than necessarily kind of coming down on a hard and fast you know, pop culture, high culture distinction, which I guess is an older way to think about how we might define that. And I kind of feel like that is the definition that I'm still working with, partly because I don't think anyone's come up with anything that's better, even though I don't think that's entirely satisfactory. So you're saying high culture can be popular culture? Uh, It's a good question, isn't it, about what – I mean, I think I guess high culture is we tend to think of as opera, ballet, you know, classical music, those kinds of things. I think certainly if you look at what the symphony, Sydney Symphony Orchestra is doing where they run, you know, Star Wars Live with the orchestra playing, I mean, I think that there are interesting crossovers there and I suspect that that distinction doesn't mean perhaps as much as it used to, although I think probably most of us would still say, well, I can kind of recognise what high culture looks like, even though I think there's some crossover there. But I think in terms of things like when you think about the golden age of television, you know, like quality television, we sort of are seeing this period where a lot of what is artistically innovative in pop culture is actually going on television. And so does that make that high or popular? You know, I actually think there's a lot of blurring around those boundaries and categories these days. And I think it doesn't make as much sense to think of the two things as separate. You know, historically, a lot of the idea around pop culture was around folk culture, you know, things that people did themselves, you know, making music in their homes or, you know, customs and all of that kind of stuff. And I think possibly that definition is not as useful to us in a capitalist society, capitalist economy. Where you can buy the latest Beyonce album. 
which isn't necessarily folk. Yeah. And yeah, in yeah, the old yeah. in the olden days you'd be sitting around the piano exactly. singing Exactly. Yeah. Waltzing Matilda or yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so I think you have to increasingly to participate in popular culture you have to enter the marketplace. Yeah. Although piracy, of course, again, yeah. has disrupted some of those assumptions. I guess I guess a similar distinction between the sort of high history, if you like, the sort of stuff that gets made, you know, the important books that are written mm. or the, the speeches that are given and so on. Is history now part of pop culture? Mm, I think history has certainly found a place in, particularly in things like television, you know, the kinds of, um, I mean, they were making history series for the Seven Network a few years ago and, and a lot of history on the ABC and things like that. So I think that history is part of that kind of broader pop mm. culture consumption mm. really. And, you know, I think a lot of um the glam sector is trying to engage people through innovative ways of presenting history to make it part of people's leisure experience or people's entertainment lives rather than just, well, you must sit over here and read a book and that's how you engage with history. You know, you can have an app and you can kind of follow a walking tour or you can do a whole bunch of other things, I think. It's it's not just rote, learnt, like memorise the first Prime Ministers of Australia. (laughs) It can be consumed now. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, history is, I mean, I'm supervising a PhD student who's working on representations of Australian history in children's historical fiction, you know, so kind of thinking about the ways that that has become quite a defined market segment Mm. in the children's literature marketplace, you know, so, and historical fiction for adults, of course, is big, historical drama on television is big. So I think that, you know, we are seeing increasingly Mm. that history is being drawn on as part of our entertainment, you know, Gallipoli stubby holders. Exactly. You know, the explosives detection bear and all that stuff that the War Memorial sells and things like that too. So yeah, absolutely. But, you know, where one stops and the other starts is an interesting question. Mm. And what do you think about nostalgia as a sort of bridge idea? Yeah, it's interesting because I think when you work on pop culture, you know, it is something that people connect with in that way. You know, they have that nostalgic connection and a kind of innate sort of memory and understanding of, of pop culture. And that's great because it gives you something to connect with people, you know, you can kind of go, yeah, you know, under, like thinking about your own understanding or your own experience of that. And I guess some of what the work historians trying to do is, I guess, to connect with that, but also to trouble it and question it and kind of like interrogate why nostalgia, what are you nostalgic for and what does that tell us? And I think with any popular history, it's a really difficult balance of how do you manage that moment of critical engagement with the connection that drives people to want to watch in the first place. You know, I think mm. that's a really difficult balance. Mm. And I think the people that do go out and venture out and try to do that stuff, we have to not hold them to the standard that we would hold a peer-reviewed article to, because I think it's trying to do something slightly different. And I think as long as it's not trying to pretend to be something it's not, we need to judge those things in the way that in the terms that on which they're created. One of the interesting things about pop culture, as you mentioned earlier, is that it provides a really interesting kind of hinge between the individual and the collective mm-hmm. and that it enables us to see ourselves as individual actors in history. But when we look back, we can see really powerful kind of collective sentiments around particular popular trends such as, you know, music or yeah. sport or whatever. What, what sort of does it tell us about that relationship between the individual and the national, for example, by studying popular culture? Like, What can it reveal? Yeah, I think... Um one of the things that I is that popular culture, as I said, it's useful for is that it helps, as you say, it helps the individual locate themselves in a broader narrative, you know. And in some ways, sometimes those broader national narratives can seem very remote to us, mm. you know, um, thinking about big 
changes in, say, I mean, looking at the 1970s, just for an example, like thinking about changes in the ways that men and women relate to each other and women's rights and all of those kinds of things. It's very hard, for I think, sometimes for people to see a broader, like a sense of their Mm. own place in that. But thinking through pop culture does allow you, I think, a way to kind of start to make sense of those changes because people often can pinpoint a moment in pop culture that they might remember that helps them think about that broader Mm. picture rather than necessarily just going, oh, well, you know, one day, you know, things change. Like, you know, it's kind of a way to trace some of those narratives, I think. So one of the um, pieces of research I did a few years ago was looking at the way that Helen Reddy's song, I Am Woman, you know, the big sort of like anthem of second wave feminism in some ways in, in a sort of more popular sense and kind of looking at the ways people talked about that song, not necessarily at the time because Helen Reddy said, I got lots and lots of letters from women talking about how this song made a difference in my life. But, of course, she didn't keep them. So <laughs> I thought, well, maybe what I can do is ask people what they remember. So it was sort of a combination of thinking about nostalgia, thinking about life narratives, but also thinking about ways that popular culture can be a way for people to sort of think about how their lives change, narrating that through a memory of a, of a particular piece of pop culture. And, you know, it was kind of interesting. People did say, you know, listening to that song helped me leave my husband or listening to that song helped me get through this point in my life, which was really difficult, you know. So I think that's an example of the way that you can kind of think about change through one person but connecting to a broader, Mm. even sort of transnational, in that case, kind of piece of pop culture. Is there one from your own individual history that you can remember that made you feel part of something bigger, like an epoch or a a moment in history? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Skippy the bush kangaroo. (laughs) Skippy is a good one, but I was probably – I'm just trying to actually think, and it's probably sort of something that's embarrassing to think of now, is that that song for the bicentenary in like 86, Six or 87, yeah. Celebration of a Nation, yeah. that one they did. And, you know, I was like, I don't know how old I was, 15 or something like that. And, you know, we got those bicentennial medallions at school and, you know, like it was all sort of – at that point I didn't have the historical understanding to kind of – I knew that the date was contested. I didn't necessarily know. I mean, I sort of knew why, but I didn't mm. necessarily understand, I think. And thinking about that, it was like, oh, this is a moment that I'm going to remember when I'm older that, you know, I was part of this, you know, I was around when Australia celebrated its bicentenary. And presumably every generation has that experience when you ask each cohort of Mm. students or whatever, what was the first historical moment you lived through when you realised you were part of history? And I presume it'll be, you know, September 11 or it'll be bicentennial or whatever. For our students now, it's definitely 9-11, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the... We've sort of been talking about consumption and what Mm. things mean to us, but the other side of that is production and, you know, talking about television and and songs. But the digital is the next big Mm. shift. How do you think that is changing the ways, what popular culture means and how we archive it? Yeah, I mean, the archiving thing is a huge question, I think. Although actually I feel like the biggest gap that we're going to realise when we look back is this sort of period of the 80s and 90s when everything's on videotape and it's all like, it's just not there, you know, and how do you write that history when, you know, like a large bit of your archival record is completely missing? Like your mixtapes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. You know, maybe that's what we all need. But, you know, like that thing of, of yeah, TV and, and film from the TV in particular from the 1970s and 80s is kind of hard to track down. Um, I think the digital, I guess in terms of how it will You know, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting in in terms of thinking about that long histories of production and consumption is that the digital has really kind of in some ways muddied those boundaries very much. And I think that the idea of who's a producer, who's a consumer is really 
different now. And I think things like YouTube and all of those things have really transformed that relationship and the way that people can become producers of pop culture rather than necessarily just consumers. There's an active there. And, you know, if you think about things like all those sites that make videos where they parody films or they, you know, like there's that sort of sense of the audience can speak back in a way that is much more um, overt and easier to find than I think it used to be. You know, if you were looking on 15, 20 years ago before the internet, if you wanted to find out what an audience thought of a film or an issue, a social issue, like where do you go to find that? You might go to the letters page in the Herald, but now there's comments pages and, you know, there's all sorts of other places to find it. And of course, we all know, don't read the comments in some ways, but I think that, you know, <laughs> they provide a record. But of course, then the other issue with that is that that all disappears. I mean, some of the research I've done on history on television in the last, like really from the 2010s, a lot of those comments pages and places where audience do respond are hosted by the national broadcast or whatever, and they just shelved, you know, so they go. So in some ways you have to have a sort of certain level of anticipation of what you might be interested in because you need to record that stuff while it's there because it will just go. And, you know, the the idea of keeping a record for the purposes of research is sort of not necessarily on their minds, I think. So it might be more democratic, but it's really fleeting. It's very fleeting. Yeah. And I found what's really interesting too is looking at the ways that cultural conversations happen about films and television, particularly historical film and television. I think it's really interesting watching the way that, you know, say a film like Dunkirk comes out and everyone has a little two weeks where everyone's got their hot take and they write their pieces and then it disappears. You know, like that process of engaging and dissecting and understand is compressed dramatically, you know. So I think that that's also quite an interesting process. I mean, I kind of want to push back a little bit Mm. because – you know, there is still there's a real politics to consumption. Mm. You know, not everybody has mm. high speed internet. Absolutely. Um, and even if you are engaging or producing, you know, your own YouTube thing, you can disappear in the back end of of YouTube. I mean, is yes. there a sort of tendency in talk of democratization mm. of the internet to kind of um, emit an analysis of those real yeah. political and are, they're owned. They're spaces that are owned. Yeah, by absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that initially the internet promised democratisation and it promised a great utopian future where everyone would be a producer and a creator and, you know, we'd all be able to um, engage together. But I think you're right that, you know, things like unequal access to the internet, um, you still have to have an internet connection and increasingly a smartphone in order to participate in those things. So I think it really does um, have certain limitations. And in some ways, I think, you know, the conversations that we have online can be echo chambery and a very limited set of concerns get raised in those. And, you know, if you think about issues around, like, for example, the same-sex marriage debate is really overwhelming questions around Indigenous recognition, you know, and like there's a sort of something there about the weight of very some kinds of voices on on social media and online that kind of can drown out, and also our capacity to not sustain multiple conversations in public debate yeah. at once. You know, yeah, and there's a kind of there, there are amplifying exactly. institutions and structures exactly, uh, and they're also selecting mechanisms, and one of them might be hashtags. Yes, who makes hash? What do you think about the politics of hashtags and what that means for production, but also consumption and filtering? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I think you know there's. Clearly, there's examples where they can kind of filter up from, you know, certain social media savvy voices can kind of have those amplified. But I guess on the other hand, too, that there is the hashtag is a way of cataloguing and, um, you know, curating social media and kind of, as you say, amplifying certain the things, Dewey suppressing other system things. system of digital culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to think. I don't know, like in terms of where they – 
like how do they emerge? Where I mean, we all know there are certain ones that we all use, Twitter storians or whatever, you know, that kind of just become part of the, the way that you, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the things that we use online. But, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly there are, you know, there's a politics to the way that those appear and disappear, I think. Mm. I mean, this leads us very nicely into your lecture because, of course, the National History Lecture that you're about to deliver on the 5th of September uh, has the title, The Popular is Political. What do you mean by that? I guess what I was doing there was trying to play on the idea of the personal is political, the 70s, you know, women's liberation slogan, because that's kind of where my, when I was asked to give this lecture, my head is kind of in that at the moment. That's what I'm writing about. I'm writing about the 1970s and kind of thinking about the ways that that idea of the personal is political kind of challenges politics. What did that mean in the in the 70s when the personal is political was the, you know? Yeah. I mean, basically it came out of the practice of consciousness raising amongst women's liberationists. So the idea of consciousness raising, you would sit around in a group of women, you'd usually meet every week or so, and you kind of talk about your problems. And the idea was is that women, when they're talking about all the things that they didn't like about their lives... The sort of, I guess the the point of that was to kind of think not about, well, this is just my problem because I've got a shitty husband, you know, or a terrible partner or kids who won't do any stuff around the house, but it was structural, you know, that there was the, the personal reflected a broader structural disenfranchisement of women and that that was kind of part of the way that women had to overcome that was to work together, to work collectively. And so that also meant that everything could be seen through that prism of politics. So lack of access to abortion and and contraception was political. It wasn't just a problem that women had to deal with individually on their own, so that these personal problems had collective solutions. And so I guess when I was thinking about the lecture and thinking about popular culture, I wanted to kind of try and think about what was the relationship between that, between women's liberation and those kind of movements for social change that were very much premised on making the personal political And something else that I knew a lot about from the 70s, which was the figure of the Ocker, the film revival of the 1970s, and this kind of nationalist moment in Australian cultural history. The 70s is really seen as this period where, you know, Australians discovered their own distinctive voice and we've had a great film industry that made all these films that reflected us back to ourselves and television. We heard Australian accents on television almost on a regular kind of basis rather than it being exceptional and unusual. We had pub rock and they were singing about places and people that we knew and understood. And you know, so kind of trying to think about these two histories tend to get written about separately. On the one hand, you have the cultural histories of the 1970s that are kind of talking about this moment of great nationalist change and, and you know, Whitlam and all of that kind of cultural optimism. And then on the other hand, you have these histories of social change. And I kind of want to think about how what would happen if you think of the two of them in the same frame. And so that's sort of where the lecture is hopefully going to. <laughs> that sense of, um, in relation to the women's movement, women sort of understanding their own personal relationships mm. at home as political, that um, that they were part of something that was bigger than themselves, is, is in a sense a kind of popular recognition yeah. or, or collective recognition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things I was also interested in investigating in the lecture was thinking about the ways that, I mean, you know, a lot of historians originally are writing about 
women's movement wrote about it as a social movement, mm. you know, of course, which it is. But I also think that, you know, right from the very beginning, and a few historians have pointed this out, that feminism was something that was understood through the media as well as being understood as a lot of people didn't necessarily have, you know, they didn't go to public meeting and have a consciousness raising discussion, but they read Clio magazine. And Clio was really quite, had quite a lot of popular feminist content in it. So I think um, thinking about the ways that feminism was understood by individuals as something that, you know, had mm. a, a, a kind of movement aspect to it, but was also something they could understand and find out about through popular culture. Mm. You know, there's f- feminist films, there's feminist magazines, and then, you know, you kind of start to see other kinds of feminist popular culture into the 1970s and 80s. So Puberty Blues made in 1980, I think, eight, 1980 into a film. It's a feminist film you know, that was extremely popular as well. So again, yeah, trying to connect the understanding of feminism as a social movement with kind of understandings of popular culture. You know, Michelle, a lot of your historical career has been focused on the history of post-war Australian political and social life, you know, with these big ideas we've been talking about, both the production element side in terms of radio, TV and and the seismic shifts in consumption and what that means for the private lives and and attitudes of of everyday Australians. And, and you, you know, in 2010, your book, titled Our Minds, Popular Culture in Australia Since 1945, came out. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about what what your fascination with this period of Australian history is. Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I'm a 19th century, early 20th century person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And isn't history meant to be really boring? (laughs) And about the distant past, yes. About federation and stuff? (laughs) I mean, my PhD was on uh, 20th century Australia too, so I kind of looked at the interwar period and, and the sort of 30s and 40s in that. But I guess I'm interested in the recent past and it, it's partly, as I said, it's it's kind of an interest that does stem from teaching. I mean, I've been teaching, you know, in university since the early 2000s and I think part of it is thinking about, you know, ways to engage people and one of the ways to engage people I feel like, you know, history course, Australian history course particularly, because people go, oh, Australian history is so boring. It's not really interesting. It's just Don Bradman or it's whatever, you know, kind of trying to think about ways to engage people and using examples from their own lives, the lives of their parents, you know, is a way to, I think, kind of make it come to life and make it seem relevant. But I'm also kind of, I guess I'm really interested in how we got to where we are at this moment. And I think that thinking about So, for example, think about the 1970s, which is where I sort of my head is at at the moment. Looking back on that, it's really interesting to think about, you know, today we live in a neoliberal moment. In the 1970s, that's kind of the last moment before the neoliberal present. You know, it's a moment where an alternative might have been chosen and didn't. And so I kind of think it's fascinating to just think, you know, that these big changes are happening very recently, you know, within our own lives, you know, like I'm born in 1972. So, you know, it's kind of a moment where you go, there's a possibility of something different and it doesn't happen. And of course, that's really the same for any approach to history, like thinking about any period of the past, you know, well, I kind of wonder of change. But if that's where some of our nostalgia for that period comes from as oh, well. Absolutely. Like, you know, I think it is about that. You know, you read, I mean, I was looking at the election platforms of the two parties in 72 and it's like, wow, you know, there's really quite a lot of progressive social liberal legislation here that we'd be very happy if both parties fronted up with that, you know, in the election in 2017. But we know we're just going to get the crumbs. And, you know, that's a really interesting sort of moment to think about how that might you know, the road not taken, I guess, which Mm. is kind of interesting. So, yeah, I think I'm just interested in this recent past because I feel like it's a period that I feel like I still don't understand it. 
you know, I'm, and I'm trying to sort of, you know, you kind of are dealing with a lot of nostalgia when you're looking at this post-war period, but you're also, I think, trying to push against that a little bit and kind of maybe complicate it a little bit more. And your interest in um, popular culture, I guess you're taking a leaf out of your own book and producing popular culture at some level by taking history into the public sphere and producing radio documentaries and so on. How important is it, do you think, for historians to think outside the book, if you like, and make histories that are widely consumed? And is what motivates you to do that? Yeah, I had a really fantastic experience making a radio program. And I've also, I was on a ABC TV history series, which didn't do very well a few years ago, about a decade or so ago now. Um, And that was fascinating as an experience of understanding how, like, partly it was a really good reminder of how what we do as historians, the sort of skills we bring and the kind of questions we ask are very different to the questions that journalists ask of the past. You know, the television show I worked on was very much about let's solve some mysteries about the past, you know, and that's fine, but it's not necessarily the sort of stuff that historians spend most of their time like who really killed the pyjama girl or whatever it was, you know, the kinds of questions that they were asking in that show. So it's kind of really interesting to think about we do approach things differently. We do ask different questions. But I do think it's a really great thing for historians to try, you know, kind of thinking beyond the book. I mean, Anna, you've written children's books about the past. You know, I think trying to think about not just working within the discipline, although I think that's important, obviously, that's really important too. But I think sometimes to kind of step beyond that and go, like, let's think about trying to make something that can engage with a broader audience. And I think with radio, clearly, it wasn't going out on 7.30 on a Sunday night. It wasn't. I didn't have to make as many compromises as you might have to make if you were making a big documentary series for, you know, a public broadcaster, for example. But I think, you know, we have to recognise that the profession needs people who are prepared to do that because if we don't do it, someone else will go and do it for us. You know, journalists will do it and they'll do the same, you know, often do the same sort of stuff Mm. that they're already doing, asking the same kinds of questions. So I think it's really, you know, the people that do it should get, you know, helpful, critical commentary, but I think they also deserve some respect for being willing to do that because not everybody has the interest or inclination Mm. to do that, but they're the kinds of things that will kind of help shape the ways that particularly our students will come to class and understand what Australian history is. Mm. You know, they're the things that can spark people's interest. Well, we're really nearly at the end of another episode of Glam City, but before we go, we're going to give you Glam Slam. This is where we let you know what glam events are coming up in our calendars for the next few weeks. Tamsin, you first. What's in your calendar? I am really excited about heading down to Rookwood Cemetery, a um, bit of a cemetery goer. <laughs> One of my by the by. little secrets. <laughs> so what's happening at Rookwood is that there is 42 artworks strategically hidden through one of the oldest sections of the cemetery. And Rookwood is an amazing, like, check it out on Instagram. It has 4,000 followers. And Arthur Conan Doyle apparently uh, used to visit it in an attempt to kind of contact people beyond the grave, Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, being the uh, author of the Sherlock Holmes series. And so the uh, sculpture exhibition runs from the 26th of August to the 24th of September, and you can find out details about it on www.hiddeninrookwood.com.au. 
And Michelle, what's in your glam diary coming up in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I am going to go head to Glee Books for the launch of a book edited by Jenny Hocking called Making Modern Australia on the 21st of September. It's a panel discussion and, and a launch of the book. Great. That's it for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website. That's 2SER.com. And you can also reach for us in your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER. If you like what we're doing, have a glam event to tell us or just want to get in touch because you like history, email us at glamcity at 2ser.com. Thanks so much to Michelle Arrow for being a fabulously erudite guest and we'll see you all back here again next week to talk more Glam City. 